Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to Leading Simple. I'm your host, Rusty George. Boy, I tell you what, I got a phone call from my dear friend, Don Gates. And he said to me, Rusty, does the name Cheryl Ladd ring a bell? I said, Don, of course it does. I remember Cheryl Ladd as a Charlie's angel. And he said, well, it just so happens I'm helping her get a book out and I'd love to have her come on your show to promote it. I said, you called the right guy. Never thought I'd have a Charlie's angel on the show, but boy, did we ever. She is an incredibly sweet woman of faith that I think you're really gonna enjoy hearing from and hearing her story of how she grew up in a home that had faith and then had to make her faith her own and navigate all of the ups and downs of Hollywood. She was so kind as to give us some of her time and share her story, and I know you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, This month, we are talking about how Real Life Church is putting on its Christmas services uh, in a very unique way, and I want to invite everybody to check it out. Even if you're not technically a part of Real Life, you can just go to one of our services online on the weekend, starting on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Sunday morning at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. All of these are Pacific times. Reallifechurch.org, and you can join in at our Christmas at the movies. If you've never been part of one of our at the movies series, it is church like you've never experienced before, as we use holiday movies to highlight great timeless truths about what Christmas is all about. So check us out there. Unfortunately, because of copyright rules, we cannot show these things later or on demand, so you have to watch them when they air at Thursday night, 7 o'clock, Sunday, 8.30, 10, or 11.30, all Pacific time. Well, love to have you join us for any of those. And here's my conversation with Cheryl Ladd. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, this is a, a, a little bit of a, of, of a strange moment for me to actually meet a Charlie's angel. And uh, I, I feel like I'm violating my mom's rules because I wasn't allowed to watch your show when I was growing up. So I had to watch it later. <laughs> okay. I understand that. <laughs> I was pretty young though at the time. Well, listen, it, it really is great to have you on the podcast. I'm, I'm grateful for the introduction that we got a little bit ago. And for our listeners that probably only know you from TV and, and film, uh, give us a little background. Tell us, uh, you know, where you grew up and a little bit about your background before California. Well, I was lucky to grow up in here on South Dakota, lovely little town there. Um, my dad was an engineer on the railroad and my mother was a housewife who did just everything. <laughs> she is amazing. She could sew. She always found, they always found ways to make money as young couples um, you know, my dad was on the railroad working, but she was never, I never remember my mother sitting down and doing nothing. Mm. It's really interesting. She was either sewing or making things or designing something. She was very, very creative. So this was in South Dakota. Is that right? Yes. What tell us about because most people that are on, you know, that listen to this program have never been to South Dakota. I've actually driven through it, uh, but there's not a lot there. So what did you find <laughs> your time doing? <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know if I got the creativity from my mother, but I was always singing, dancing, taking dancing lessons, um, loving movies. I remember 
Um, it was just such a perfect place to grow up as a child. I felt mm. very safe. Um, we were all very safe. And, uh, you know, we did all the things that little kids did then. We, you know, went went trick-or-treating and went to the park and rode our bikes all over town. We had such freedom and such um, imaginations. We'd build forts in people's backyards. And um, it was just so idyllic. I, I feel very fortunate that I got to grow up there with parents who loved each other and loved their children. How many siblings do you have? I have an older sister, two years old, older than I am. And um, I have a brother who is six years younger. And then I have a brother that's 17 years younger. Okay. So growing up, South Dakota, you told me you were a bit of a tomboy, played outside a lot. Uh, just what do you remember about your parents and and faith? And was that a big part of your life? Was that something that was talked about much? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting. I think, first of all, um, my my mother took us to church. We went to Sunday school, my sister and I, and we loved it. And we were just a few blocks from the Presbyterian Church on Main Street. And um, hmm. yeah, we loved going to Sunday school. And it it's interesting that my father, we never really discussed religion, and yet I felt that my father was really connected, but he was a trapper and and uh, loved to be out in the wilderness. And it's in that generation, it was something, I, I uh, mentioned this to someone the other day too, that you didn't talk about religion. And you didn't talk about politics. Mm -hmm. You wanted to have friends. It was really weird. Um, now I can't wait to talk to people about the Lord and um, my journey with the Lord and all of that. I'm. It, it's a whole different world now for us. Yeah. It is interesting that you would assume, because it seems so volatile to talk about politics and even in some cases religion today, Back then, you would assume that it would be easier, but you're you're saying that it really wasn't. They didn't talk about it much. You just you did your work. You went about your family life, and it was what it was. Is that right? Yes, and I think it it was just kind of an un, unwritten rule for grownups. Um, you just you made friends, and you were good people. I mean, my my parents had great friends, wonderful people. Um, you did your work and uh, your prayers were yours. You, your conversation mm -hmm. with God belonged to you. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, huh? Yeah, it really is. So you grow up with this uh, faith being impressed upon you, but not, not uh, lorded over you. And then somehow you get to California. So Connect the dots for us there. I mean, I would assume that everybody in South Dakota wants to get out to something more exciting, but maybe some want to stay with the more uh, uh, Norman Rockwell kind of life. But but you were one that wanted to get out. Is that right? Well, I knew I wanted to sing, dance, and act. The minute I, I saw um, a couple of younger actors in films, I thought, mm. hey, I could do that. And I then, of course, I was uh, taking dancing lessons and my my dad uh, got me a guitar. So I got to learn how to play the guitar. And um, I just I just had this dream that I wanted to. Oh, and then I got to go see visit my uh, cousin in St. Louis and they had a big municipal outdoor 
they called it the, uh, I guess it was just, they put on, literally put on um, plays, uh, like New York plays that would travel through. And I got to go see my first real play. Wow. And um, there were two couple of children in it. And I thought, I looked at them and went, I could do that. I, I know I can do that. Mm-hmm. And it was just so real for me. And then as my sister says, you were, you were so weird, Cheryl. You're just so weird when you were growing up. Cause I, <laughs> I try on different hairdos and wigs and go, I mean, my sister would just go mother, do something about her. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother would say, Oh honey, just let her be her. I mean, we love, and my, my, I, when I look back, I can see that my sister was suffering a bit for my, um, uh, weird antics. And, uh, it's so funny. Cause we're, we're like, we were always really close, but we were entirely different in our mm-hmm. views of what we wanted in the world. Um, you know, she's been my, you know, my biggest cheerleader my whole life. Well, next to my mother. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you, you were at the time, uh, you know, uh, a kid that wanted to perform and wanted to sing and dance and, and getting to California was not even so much about acting as it was about music. Is that right? Yes. That's right. I started out um, singing with a band and we were kind of, they were wonderful musicians. Uh, A couple of them were in the army band and a brilliant piano player. And uh, yes, so they had a singer and she became ill. So they had all these jobs booked. So they were just going crazy trying to find somebody to sing. And I had done some you know, some singing in school and in plays and and around town, little luncheon things for the ladies when they had a ladies' lunch, and I would come and sing. And um, so uh, the guy that was at the radio station said, "Well, I I know a, somebody that can sing. Uh, would you like to meet her?" And he said, "Yes, we're desperate. Just yes." So I auditioned, and he asked me how old I was, and I said. 18 he goes hmm I don't think so I said okay well 17 are you 17 he said I said not quite yet but I'm going to be 17 this summer anyway (laughs) I had to talk my parents into letting me go uh sing with the band he said can you can you learn 30 songs in two weeks I said absolutely I mean I didn't know (laughs) That sounds doable. I wasn't going to say no. I was going to try to have this opportunity. Anyway, as it worked out, um, I had to, this was the scandal. I had to stop being a cheerleader if I was going to work on the, you know, on the weekends, Friday nights and Saturday nights in the clubs. I had to have a a B average at least if I, or, or my parents wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. So I had to keep my schoolwork up and I, I started singing in nightclubs that I wasn't old enough to be in. <laughs> so was this a, a weekly event or just randomly here and there? Um, I would say sometimes uh, two weekends a month, sometimes three, then, then one. And it, it was kind of like that. So you make your way out to California to be able to be part of this band and to sing uh, how much of that did you do before you finally got a job or finally got paid to be a singer? And then how did that translate into acting? 
When I got to California, I had my 19th birthday there. So I had had now some experience of performing in front of people and all of that. And um, actually, it's interesting because the gentleman that became our manager um, saw me singing in somewhere in Wyoming. Mm. And he said, kid, I've seen them all. I've handled them all. I've I've watched them come and go. He said, and you've got it. I've got it. <laughs> I went, I what? Because I thought he was going to fire me. I don't know why. Um, you know, I just had this feeling like, why does he want to talk to me by myself? Mm-hmm. Anyway, he said, if you want to end up in California, if you guys want to come out that direction, he said, I think I can really help you. And I think you've got it. And I mm-hmm. said, okay. So we ended up in California. Now, uh, the other band members had families and jobs they were much older than me. So they went back to, to Huron and I stayed, I stayed there and I went on my first audition and it was for the singing voice of Melody and Josie and the Pussycats cartoon series. And I got my first job. Wow. Exciting. Yeah. How did that feel? You, You finally get out here and then you get a job. I mean, did you feel like, man, I've arrived? Oh yes. Well, Several great things happened. I made some great friends um, as one of the songwriters for the for the show and uh, another one of the singers. And the three of us got an apartment, a two bedroom apartment together because we couldn't afford anything. Um, But we were getting paychecks. So we decided we were going to get our apartment. And then I bought a used white Mustang car. Interesting. Ironically, uh, Mustang. And um I remember driving uh, over to to the coast, you know, out to the beach and in Malibu and thinking, wow, it just doesn't get any better than this. Right. <laughs> I had like $2,000 in my bank account. And I just remember thinking, this is what I'm supposed to do. And, yeah. uh, and all signs are pointing to, and, and then I had to get into acting class and I, I really wanted to learn my craft in a proper way. And, uh, and I took it seriously. So. You know, I've always, I've always wondered when, when somebody aspires to be an actor and then they start acting, um, maybe they've had some classes, maybe they, they get some classes along the way. What's the biggest thing you had to get used to? Is it the, you know, knowing how to hit your mark? Is it knowing how to keep, you know, facing the camera? Is it interacting with your co-stars? What's the most difficult thing you got to learn how to do that many of us don't think about when it comes to becoming an actor? Um, I think that, that, that you have to bring every ounce of self the present, your presence, you have to bring it all. You can't, um, creating a character is, is kind of a oxymoron because you are the character. You just be the character. You, you know, who she is, you know, things about her, what she is after within the scene. And then you bring yourself to it and just make it as honest and real and interesting i mean i i I think you you just try to be real because people see it there are people watch things they go i I don't like that actor very much i I just see him acting all the time and my husband said you know the best actors are the one ones you never catch them acting Hmm. and uh, i think that's very true 
And, uh, and it takes, sometimes it really takes a lot of, um, not just practice, it kind of, in acting classes, it was just driven into us that, that this is a real moment and this is you, everything about you is this character. So bring mm. that, bring you. And it was That's good. Really advice. Good. That's great advice. Okay. So what everybody wants to know is how did you get on Charlie's angels? How, how does that happen? I mean, were there several acting jobs and gigs and commercials and all that you did before that? Did somebody discover you? Did it happen out of the blue? Did you try to get that job? Tell us that whole journey. Well, I had been, as I said, I was there since 19. Um, I had done lots of television shows, uh, Happy Days and Partridge Family, all, all kinds of shows. So I had a lot under my belt, which was good. And I actually got to do a, a film, which is where I met my husband, David Ladd. And so when I was 20, I had just had Jordan. She was... And things were just rocking and rolling. I was getting more work than than I ever thought. I was being able to 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 really pick and choose as opposed to just say yes, mm -hmm. which which was pretty great. So I was I wouldn't say perfectly well established, but I people were aware of me all over um, Los Angeles and you know directors and mm -hmm. and producers and things and. Um, I got a call that Farrah Fawcett was leaving Charlie's Angels. And I had worked for Aaron probably three or four times. And 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 he was a fan of mine to begin with. And he called and said that he wanted me to take take over. And I just I wasn't feeling it. I was like, mm. I don't first of all, Farrah was the biggest, she was the queen of everything. Mm -hmm. Um and just so popular and huge and and it was kind of concerning that she wanted to walk away from a hit show but I mean she had her thoughts about who she wanted to be but I just didn't know how somebody was going to walk in there and and make it work so I said thank you but no thank you and then I went to my acting class and I I told my friends that I had been offered the part and they and they said, oh, that's fantastic. Good for you. I said, no, no. I said, no. They go, are you out of your mind? <laughs> How could you not? What? Cheryl, think about this. It's it's a huge hit show. Um, so then they made me think about it a little bit. And in the meantime, um, Aaron saw hundreds of girls from New York to LA all across the country. He saw a lot of young actresses to come in and he just didn't find who he wanted. And the cute story is my husband and I were walking into the Palm restaurant one evening and Aaron was sitting there with his wife and his friend. And, and then, and the, the guy had, and I heard the story later. I didn't know it at the moment, but He's, he was saying to Aaron, Aaron, you'll find somebody. There are so many great, beautiful, talented girls in this town. You'll find somebody. And I walked, David and I walked in the door and he said, that girl could <laughs> take her place. And Aaron said, that's Cheryl. She said, no. So the next morning, I mean, we went over and had a chat, everything the next morning he called me. So I went in to see him and he said, why don't you want to do the show? I said, Aaron, nobody can go in there and try to be Farrah Fawcett. Um, what would I play? 
He said, what do you mean? What would you play? I said, well, I don't know. If she could be funny. He said, why couldn't she be funny? I said, oh, well. And if she's, you know, people root for the underdog. And if she's trying really hard and and makes some mistakes so people can relate. And he said, oh, I really like that. And then Aaron's genius. He said, I've got it. What if you're Farrah's little sister and you're already part of the family? I looked at him and I thought, now I know who I am and who I'm going to be. And I'm part of the family. I said, I'm in. And that's how it happened. So uh, our, our mutual friend, Don Gates, was telling me that you told him a story about showing up on set with a T-shirt on. Tell us that story about what your T-shirt said. Well, Farah was uh, married to Lee Majors. So she was Farah Fawcett Majors. And I came on and I had a T-shirt that said Farah Fawcett Minor. um and people laughed and you know it broke the ice and everybody was nervous and um I did the circus episode first because um I think ABC wanted to see me and see me in a full episode and all of that so that was kind of my audition, but it was not really an audition. They had already signed me, but I think they they wanted to see that show. But that wasn't the first show that aired. Obviously, it was me coming through the door um, in Charlie's office. Mm. And the rest is history. So tell us about just, I mean, you come on this show. It's a hit show. You're, you've got big shoes to fill. And they've, you know, you and Aaron have created the character you want to be, but how did you deal with the, the expectations people had, the perceptions people had, obviously you seem to have, you know, a sense of humor to take it all in stride, but were there days you felt like, you know, the, the, uh, the, the tabloids or the media really kind of got you down because maybe they were comparing you to Farah or you weren't who they expected or whatever. I mean, we all battle some comparison in our minds. How did you deal with that? Um, I just sort of put my nose to the grindstone, put the blinders on and said, I'm, I signed up for this. I'm going to do the best I can. And it's going to be what it's going to be. And, um, you know, and I had a two-year-old daughter at home. I had a lot of things that were really important to me (laughs) doing a good job was one, but also being a mother and, you know, it was becoming harder and harder because I was working 10, 12 hour days, five days a week. Then in the meantime, doing video, um, uh, you know, photo sessions, because you had to have constantly, you had to have new pictures and the girls together and what clothes. And and then you had to have all these fittings. And then you, it was, it was a whirlwind. And I really, you know, I think I, I did well the first year, but mm-hmm. it got harder and harder and harder as it went along, because I, I, I was losing my family. I was losing my relationship with my daughter. I mean, and she didn't want to come to the set all the time. She wanted to go and be with her friends and play. And um, it was I, it was just incredibly crushing as as far as being so uh, removed 
from being a mother and, and a wife and all of these things. And it took its toll. Um, you know, I lost my marriage and, uh, you know, there's always, there's always the dark side of something. There's always something over there. I think that, mm. that you have to deal with uh, and look at, even when you're just going 18,000 miles an hour with your career, that things were breaking down and I didn't have time to notice them. So it was tough. When do you think you did notice? Hey, let me interrupt this podcast for just a second to remind you this Christmas, check out one of our Christmas services, reallifechurch.org for service times. Love to see you there. Now back to the show. When do you think you did notice? Um, I think in the middle of the second year and I was it during my hiatus, I was doing, I never stopped working. And I think that was a mistake. Um, Cause I was doing specials and being on other people's specials and my own specials and recording, I, uh, becoming a recording artist. I, when I look back, I, even I can't believe how hard I I worked and everybody said, no, you got to strike while the iron's hot. And all the advice I was getting is push forward, push forward, push forward. And um, I mean, I got to the place where I was, I had a really lost feeling like, who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? I don't know if I could keep doing this. And I, I just, I just felt part of my life that was very important to me, just crumbling. And, and it did. And it was really sad. Were there people in your life you felt you could talk to about this? Were there co-stars that you think, oh, they get it? Or maybe even, or, you know, were you talking to any kind of a, maybe your agent or a therapist or whatever that, you know, kind of gave you advice along the way? Um, no, I didn't do any of those smart things. I, <laughs> it just put nose to the grindstone and just kept going and kept going and kept going until I literally kind of had a breakdown. I mean, I, I, I cried for three days straight. I couldn't get out of bed. I was just, I, I, I wasn't coping with it at all. So, yeah. you know, then I went to see somebody and it was just a lot. Where do you think God was in all of this? was um, obviously he's there. Did you notice him? Did, had you kind of put him on the back burner? Um, where was your relationship with him during this? Uh, I didn't have time for him either. Hmm. I just was like that little mount rat on that wheel. Yeah. When it hit, it hit like that. And I lost track of him and myself and my marriage and all of it. It was just so heavy and overwhelming. And I think that's why I crashed because I needed God. I needed help and I mm -hmm. needed to talk to him. And that's when I started really working myself back into uh, my relationship with God and uh, really viewing the marriage and um, realizing that that it wasn't going to work. And that was really hard to face. Talked to God a lot about that. And in the end, um, I grew up and I really, 
really trusted him. I really trusted God. And every, every, at every turn, things be- started to become more clear, more clear, more clear. And, um, and I knew that he was still with me. I wasn't sure uh, what life was going to be like without my marriage or anything. And I was still in as I called it, penitentiary fox doing Charlie's Angels because I had signed a contract, you know. Um, I wasn't going to walk away. Um, maybe I should have, but um, no, I did the right thing. I, I honored my contract. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I started talking to the Lord and he started giving me more and more strength, more and more clarity clarity about who I was, I kind of got back to Sherry Stoppelmore hmm. and who she was. That's interesting. You kind of go back to who you really are. Um, yeah. I, I think that even though not many of us can relate to having to deal with you know, stardom and fame and and the bright lights that you dealt with, but we've all had those seasons of our life where we think, uh, when things eventually settle down or things will, this is just a season. One day it will get calmer and then a season turns into, you know, a decade and maybe even a lifetime. And a lot of us have worked really hard and hit the wall or crashed and burned. And it sounds like there were some key moments along that hitting the bottom part for you of you turned to God rather than just worked harder. Am I, am I getting that right? Yes. Absolutely right. I realized that my rudder was broken mm. <laughs> completely. And um, yeah, I just I just started praying more every day and getting stronger and feeling like and I talked to him a lot. We had a lot of conversations mm. and I had a lot of tears. And um I just as I said, he just the more I could breathe and trust him and realize, you know, have to really take a real look at what was going on in my life and who was in my life. And, and he just helped me quietly, slowly by slowly get stronger and get clear and really be able to face the fact that my marriage was over and that I had to just be honest about that and deal with it. And Mm. that was hard. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And then I, I got remarried to somebody who, uh, when we were together, we said, if we're going to be together, we're going, we're going to church, we're taking our girls to Sunday school, we are putting God first in our lives. And that and we're married 42 years now, almost 42 in January. Well, congratulations on that. That's fantastic. So you get remarried. How old was your daughter when you got uh, married the second time? She was five and a half, six okay. years. Just turning six. Okay. So and my, my husband's daughter uh, was a year and a half younger. So we had these two little girls that uh, we that became a real family, and they adore each other. Now they're grown up women, right? Well, that that's a that's a beautiful ending to that that chapter of your life. Yes. Professionally, Charlie's Angels ends, 
Did you find it hard to define yourself post Charlie's Angels or had you done enough of the self-work, the God work, the new marriage that you had an identity beyond Charlie's Angels? I did. I really felt whole and capable and much stronger. And um, I did know that when the girls were small, I was not going to do another series. It, mm. It's just too, too, too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to be able to go away and do a film for four or five weeks, um, that I could handle. And often the girls would, and the family would come with me at least for parts of it, you know? And so it, so it was so nice to be able to be home and be home when the kids are back from school. And, and, you know, and then we, we had a real family life. We played a lot of games, you know, um, just charades and fun things like that. And had a group of friends who had children. So it, it all became healthy. Hmm. So this was while you're still in California and you told me that you were living in Los Angeles, but then moved up to Santa Barbara. Is that right? Yes. Up in the Santa Inez Valley. When our girls were in high school, um, we thought it was really important to get them out of LA while they were uh-huh. in high school. And it's so cute because this little town we lived in, uh, Santa Inez, Solvang, a lot of people know about Solvang. Oh, yeah. Um, a little Dutch anyway, community. Yes. And that's uh, where she, they went and graduated from high school eventually. And it was so good for them. They were in the school plays. It was like, in a way, the way I grew up in South Dakota, it was much more like that there. And I'll never forget overhearing Jordan saying to her friend, "Um, what's it like? Uh, Let me think. She said, it's kind of like that movie Grease. (laughs) (laughs) So that was pretty throwback. Um, (laughs) That just made me laugh. Uh, and they, they just, it was, they were thriving there. They were in a good, safe place. And, you know, it was a small town environment and everybody kind of knew everybody. And Mm -hmm. and that was a good thing. And that was a really good time for them both. You know, this, uh, this podcast is called, uh, leading simple, where we always try to find a way to simplify some of the most difficult things in life. But some of the things that we're talking about here today, they weren't simple, that you went through, uh, you know, getting, getting back into your relationship with God. That was probably, probably the easiest thing you could do, but even as starting out another relationship and, and having a marriage that goes the distance and those kind of things for our audience, that there's some people out there that they have hit rock bottom when it comes to workaholism. What would you say to them about how to get out of that? Um, I would say, first of all, it's asking for help and just really looking at yourself in the mirror and say, is, is, is this my joy? And why am I doing this? Why am I beating myself up and getting on that treadmill and, and making that the only thing in my life that is, that is overwhelmingly important and all of those things. I just, I really, I just really think that it's it's not worth it. It's not worth the celebrity, the money, that all of that is, you know, 
I'm not putting any of it down. You work hard, you get paid. I mean, all of that is part of life, but it's not, it's not the deepest and most valuable part of life. And I learned that so well and with such grace from the Lord that, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been a happy camper pretty much ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a remarkable story there. You just, you corrected it and then moved on. That is incredible. Okay. What about for somebody out there going through a divorce and they've got a young child or children involved in the process and they're thinking, boy, I don't want to put them in a bad situation going forward. Uh, what, what advice would you give to them? Um, get help, get counseling, no matter what, if the, if the marriage is truly over, be kind, be kind to your ex, be kind to the kids, be thoughtful, talk things through, don't let them go in the room, close the door and, and not talk to you. And that takes some mm -hmm. doing because your kids don't want to be, they love both of you. They're going to love both parents, whether you two are together or not. And never, never, never try to put down the other parents. Mm. That is a no. That person is struggling too. And that you married that person. There's so, so there's some really good stuff in that person. The fact that the two of you are not going to make it um, doesn't mean that you can't be kind and uh, respectful and all of the things you need to be to each other. That's so good. Okay. What about you? You've had a marriage go 42 years. That's incredible. What have you learned along the way that has made it so fulfilling? Cause there had to be ups and downs and highs and lows through all of that. Your people that just happens. But what would you say to our audience of how to kind of here, here's the, the, the simplest way to make a marriage great? Well, first, I'm a saint. I mean. <laughs> of course. <laughs> My husband says, and I'm a very patient man. <laughs> we laugh a lot. Just what we're doing right now. Yeah. We, um, you know, no, no life is smooth. It's hills and valleys and then smooth and then hills and valleys and then smooth. And I mean, you have to, you have to really find a way to first be kind and really try to speak with that person that you love so much if things are not, mm. or heading in a way that is not working for one or the other of you. And just, you know, just remember how much you love each other. Mm. And that's what I think in my first marriage, it just, it was like, we kind of lost that part. Everything mm. was so overwhelming and we lost that. And if you ever get an opportunity to, to have that again, you know how precious it is. Mm. So just, just pour the love out. Don't be shy about it. Put your arms around somebody or walk up to somebody and say, I'm having a bad day. I need a hug. Do it. Don't don't say, well, I wish he'd hug me. No, ask him. He would love to hug you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. We just try to be really present and real and every moment. And, you know, sometimes I go in a room and read my books. He's reading his books and 
We see each other later in the in the day, and that's great too. We have a relationship of that is such a deep friendship. Um, I mean, we're in love with each other, but we have a really we started out as friends, so that friendship is still and and communication is really important. And I know, don't, and don't try to be the boss either of you. There is no boss. There's the two of you together. Mm-hmm. Nobody tells anybody how it's going to be. You talk through how you both would like it to be. Mm-hmm. Those are really good words. That's a master class in marriage right there. <laughs> uh, I know that you are in the process of, of writing a book and you want to put some of your stories and life into written form that will bless other people. What do you think the message is that you're trying to get out about just your own journey and certainly about your relationship with God? Well, that he's always there waiting for you. He's never not there. He's letting you make your own mistakes. He's letting you stumble. Mm-hmm. But the more to me, I want, I think the whole of my story of my life is the, the closer I was to God, the more joyful, the more comforted, the more fun fun is because God really loves us. And that's a gift. That is the greatest gift of all. Mm. So good. Well, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask some of these questions because I know our listeners want to know, give us some of your favorite moments from Charlie's Angels. I mean, this is an iconic show in the history of American television uh, you'll forever be associated with that. I, I think it was what five, six years of your life, and and here it, it it continues to define you. What are some of your fond memories of those days and your co-stars? Um, well, Jacqueline and I, well, everyone knows that we're still great friends. I was just on the phone to her yesterday; it was her birthday, and um, we see each other when we can. Uh, it's not as often as we'd like, but we talk all the time, and. Mm talk and talk and talk. (laughs) Um, It's just really nice to have gotten such a beautiful, wonderful friend uh, from the show. Um, I think the very first show that I, uh, I did that, that I was on was circus with circus of terror. It was called, and I had to be the uh, sword throwers assistant. And that (laughs) I, Because of that, uh, that's one of the first things that comes into my mind because it was the first show uh, that I filmed. And then to stand in that thing and and have that guy throw it. I said, he's not really going to throw swords at me, is he? And they go, no, Cheryl, but you, when we say you stand in this position, don't move because they come flying out the back so fast that it, it looks like he's throwing them at me. And then boom, like a gunshot, boom, they would come out like this. So uh, I had a lot of things to learn um, being Chris Monroe. Uh, anyway, it was it was just a fun show to do. I liked the character. Um, I liked the fact that in the show, the three women were for each other. I thought that was a really great example of women really working together, really caring about each other, really having close relationships and um, I think uh, being so capable 
And I think it inspired, I know it inspired millions of young women um, to, to venture out. I mean, when that show was on, it was just starting where women are, were getting different kind of careers, kinds of careers. And, and we, you know, when I was growing up, women were secretaries, teachers, nurses. I mean, there were, that's, that's where they could get a job. Um, and I think it really showed the show showed young women that they don't have those same barriers. If you're interested in this, if you want to be a soldier, if you want to join the army, join the army, you have these opportunities. I can't tell you how many I've met, um, uh, police officers, not just officers, but they were the sergeants. They were the the head of the police department in in all these places. And I can't tell you the letters I get from from women, young women, and uh, and telling me about their careers. And it was because of watching Charlie's Angels that they felt that they could go after something like that. It, it's so rewarding. Well, that's great. What a legacy to have. Well, Cheryl, I know there's much more legacy to be written as your book will be coming out and it will bless a lot of people uh, when it releases. Love to have you back and have you read some of it to us. Tell us more about some of these stories in it. I'm so grateful for our uh, uh, meeting and thankful for, uh, for you sharing your story with our audience today. Such a pleasure. Really, I can't wait to meet you in person. Well, thank you so much. What an incredible conversation with an incredible woman. And I'm so grateful for stories like this where we see the way that God is weaving together our lives and putting us together with the right people at the right time. Thank you, Cheryl, for being a part of the podcast. You may have heard this and thought, boy, I got a friend that would really love to hear this. Or uh, I had a friend that grew up on Charlie's Angels. uh, You know, she would love this. He would love this. Hey, pass it along to them and make sure you encourage them to subscribe to the podcast so they get these podcasts every single week. Hey, for those of you that love TV and movies, next week we'll be back with one of our favorite guests, movie producer Dan Angel, as he talks about his favorite Christmas movies, the critically acclaimed Christmas movies, and the Christmas movies you maybe didn't know about, but you should. So it's all things Christmas here at the Leading Simple Podcast. Make sure you join us next week. And as always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.